This is a recording of They Were Moved with Compassion, toponymic wordplay on Zarahemla and Jershon, by Matthew L. Bowen, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 18, 2016, pages 185 through 205, read by Parker Jackson. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed. If it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. They were moved with compassion. Toponymic wordplay on Zarahemla and Jershon by Matthew L. Bowen. As in Hebrew biblical narrative, wordplay on or play on the meaning of toponyms or place names is a discernible feature of Book of Mormon narrative. The text repeatedly juxtaposes the toponym Jershon, place of inheritance or place of possession, with terms inherit, inheritance, possess, possession, etc. Similarly, the Mulekite personal name Zarahemla, seed of compassion or seed of pity, which becomes the paramount Nephite toponym as their national capital after the time of Mosiah I, is juxtaposed with the term compassion. Both word plays occur and recur at crucial points in Nephite-Lamanite history. Moreover, both occur in connection with the migration of the first-generation Lamanite converts. The Jershon word play recurs in the second generation when the people of Ammon received the Zoramite reconverts into the land of Jershon, and word play on Zarahemla recurs subsequently when the sons of these Lamanite converts come to the rescue of the Nephite nation. Rhetorical word play on Zarahemla also surfaces in important speeches later in the Book of Mormon. First proposed by John A. Tvetnes, Seed of Compassion or Seed of Pity has become the widely accepted etymology for Zarahemla. More recently, David E. Bokovoy and Pedro Alavaria have found support for this etymology in the text of Mosiah 9.2, and we returned those of us that were spared to the land of Zarahemla, and 3 Nephi 8.24. And then would our brethren have been spared, and they would not have been burned in that great city Zarahemla. In this study, I will explore additional examples of toponymic narration that utilize the name Zarahemla not noted in the aforementioned studies, namely in Alma 27, 4 through 5, and 53, 10 through 13, as well as in the speech of Nephi the son of Helaman, recorded in Helaman 8:21. In the latter verse, Nephi asks the decadent inhabitants of Zarahemla, Will ye say that the sons of Zedekiah were not slain, all except it were Mulek? Yea, and do ye not behold that the seed of Zedekiah are with us? The national capital Zarahemla was named after the first descendant of Mulek encountered by Mosiah I and the righteous Nephites who fled from the land of Nephi. The same Zarahemla was, at the time, king of the Mulekites, who subsequently united with these Nephites. The word play on Zarahemla in Alma 27, 4-5, and 53, 10-13, emphasizes the later element in the names pity and compassion. Zarahemla became not only a symbol of the miraculous survival of Zedekiah's and thus King David's seed among the Nephites, but also the faithful Nephites' first refuge after their flight from the land of Nephi, and later their new homeland and long-term capital city. Moreover, Mormon uses the name Zarahemla as a symbol of the acts of compassion or pity that saved the lives of 
converted Lamanites who fled from the land of Nephi. Moreover, I will show how the story of the resettlement of Ammon's Lamanite converts is told twice, both using the, the same wordplay involving two toponyms, Jershon and Zarahemla. Alma 27 emphasizes that while Ammon and his brethren were moved with compassion for these converted Lamanites, the Nephites did not admit these Lamanites into the city of Zarahemla, but instead gave them to the land of Jershon for an inheritance. Alma 53 verses 10 through 13 emphasizes rather that the converted Lamanites were brought down into the land of Zarahemla because of the pity of Ammon and his brethren. This pity, then, constitutes the basis for the later compassion of the Lamanite converts who allow their sons to fight on behalf of the Nephites when the survival of the latter is threatened by massive Lamanite military assaults from the land of Nephi. The differences in the narrative's respective literary emphases reflect the reality that existed during the time of Helaman the son of Alma. The converted Lamanites, or the people of Ammon, were then, a generation later, living in the land of Zarahemla, at least near Malek, and thus much nearer to the city of Zarahemla, rather than in the land of Jershon. Thus the name Zarahemla not only became a symbol of the compassion or pity that Ammon and his brethren had for the Lamanites, and a symbol of the converted Lamanites had a generation later for the Nephites, but can still be seen as a symbol of the Lord's compassion for the seed of Jacob today. Biblical Wordplay Involving Toponymy Toponymic wordplay on Zarahemla and Jershon has numerous antecedents in Hebrew biblical narrative, examples of which would have been available and familiar to Book of Mormon writers from the brass plates, including later writers like Alma the Younger and Mormon. Toponymic wordplay on the biblical toponym Salem, in terms of the Hebrew word Salam, uh, meaning peace, Hebrew being one of the two languages the Nephites said they used throughout their history, is at least one indication that Alma and Mormon were familiar with and incorporated toponymic wordplay in their own narratives, at least in part to show that toponyms were appropriate in light of what occurred there. Salient examples of biblical toponymic wordplay in Hebrew include the renaming of Luz as Bethel, explained in several biblical passages beginning in Genesis 28 verses 10 through 19. At this location, Jacob dreamt and saw a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Jacob also saw the Lord standing above the ladder, and here the Lord gives him the Abrahamic promise. Then the narrator records, And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning, and took the stone that he had put for his pillows, and set it up for a pillar, and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, or Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. In the Genesis narrative, Bethel, meaning house of El, or house of God, which becomes an important cultic site within Israel, is described as a place already functioning as a temple, a Bet Elohim, or house of gods, with the Lord himself standing at the gate of heaven, and with the angels of God coming and going like priestly officiants. Even the old name Luz, meaning almond tree, possibly suggests the earlier sacredness and cultic use of the site, 
This renaming story is briefly retold again in Genesis 35, 6-7, emphasizing the L element in the name. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is, Beth-el, he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El-Beth-el, because there the gods, Ha-Elohim, appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. In the Genesis 28 version, Jehovah and the angels of God appeared to Jacob at Luz, or Bethel. A later Deuteronomistic narrative in Judges 17 and 18 polemicizes against Bethel as an illicit house of gods built by Micah, an Ephraimite who employs a rogue Levite who is later taken away from the former by Danites. The narrator uses the same expression to play on Bethel. And the man Micah had an house of gods, or Beth Elohim. There is in the Deuteronomistic recounting of this story an anticipation of the events of 1 Kings 12 and 13 and the establishment of Dan and Bethel as the main cult sites in the northern kingdom. As Sergei Frolov observes, what makes Micah's artifacts even worse than the later calves of Dan and Bethel of 1 Kings 12 through 13, or bull images of Jehovah, is the provenance of the treasure used to manufacture them. According to Judges 17 and 18, both Bethel and Dan have their origin in blood money. Yet another version, a Josephite conquest of Luz or Bethel, is told in Judges 1, verses 22 through 26, a version in which Luz is rebuilt somewhere on Hittite land. The importance of Bethel as an Israelite city is evidenced by the number and variety of stories told about its incorporation into Israel. Similarly, the toponym Horma, which Hugh Nibley suggested might stand behind the Book of Mormon toponym Desolation, is explained at least twice by wordplay in terms of the Israelite policy of prescription, or utter destruction, of the Canaanite peoples in the land of promise. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel, and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and he called the name of the place Horma. The narrator suggests that the name Horma is an appropriate toponym because of the policy of utter destruction being carried out at this spot. A different text later in Judges retells the naming of the Horma. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. And the name of the city was called Horma. This time, the naming of Horma is actually a renaming of the town Zephath. As Kevin A. Wilson notes, Numbers 2, verse 3, explains that the meaning by saying that the Israelites destroyed the Canaanite towns in the area. According to Judges 1.17, however, the city was originally called Zephet, but its name was changed after Judah helped Simeon destroy it. It is also noteworthy that Joshua 15, verse 30, assigns the city to the territory of Judah, while Joshua 19.4 and 1 Chronicles 14.30 assign the territory to Simeon. Joshua 15.30 may reflect the later reality already hinted at in Joshua 19 verses 1 through 8 and 1 Chronicles 14.24 through 31. The tribal inheritance of Simeon in the south was eventually absorbed into the inheritance of Judah. In both etiologies, the policy of utter destruction is cited as the reason for the appropriateness of the toponym. In the first interpretation, or telling, of the event, the utter destruction of multiple Canaanite towns is given as the basis for the toponym Horma. In the second interpretation, or retelling, the utter destruction of Zephath is the basis. Moshe Garcia cites 
this second example as an instance of toponymic wordplay in which the author dispenses with connective words on the assumption that the linkage is clear enough without it. Sometimes wordplay in toponymic narrative is even more subtle. The final verses of Second Samuel 12 describe David's conquest of the Ammonite capital Rabbah, meaning great or populous, or the great city, a name that we might also interpret as bountiful, or the bountiful city. The biblical text here connects the name Rabbah with great abundance. And David gathered all the people together, and went to Rabbah, and fought against it, and took it. And he took their king's crown from off his head. The weight whereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones, and it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. The great abundance of the spoil taken from Rabbah emphasizes not only the significance of David's victory over the city, but also within the narrative context, the appropriateness of the name Rabbah. A great abundance of spoil is to be expected from a capital city whose name denoted greatness or abundance. Many other such examples of toponymic wordplay in the Hebrew Bible could be cited. The main point here is that these kinds of toponymic narratives, including toponymic wordplay, constituted an important part of the scriptural literary heritage that Lehites brought with them from Jerusalem. Such toponymic narratives, which sometimes included etiological components, endeavored to show why a toponym was appropriate in light of events that occurred there. As I will endeavor to show, it remained an important part of the Nephite scriptural tradition. A Tale of Two Toponyms Robert F. Smith and John W. Welts were the first to correlate a toponym or place name in the Book of Mormon with wordplay in the underlying text when they individually noticed the juxtaposition of Jershon, or place of inheritance, with the terms inherit and inheritance, also possess and possession, represented by the root YRS to inherit or possess in Hebrew. This wordplay occurs as a theme to Alma 27, 22 through 26, chapter 35, verse 14, and chapter 43, verses 22 and 25. The fact that this juxtaposition occurs repeatedly in three separate pericopes suggests that the wordplay is intentional. The Book of Mormon text exhibits similar intentional wordplay on Zarahemla. John Tvetnas concluded that Zarahemla is formed from the Hebrew elements Zerah and Hemla, with the meaning seed of compassion. Zerah meaning seed, and Hamla meaning compassion. Zarahemla and Jershon represent important test cases. Both constitute Book of Mormon names and toponyms that are not otherwise attested in the biblical record, both of which follow the rules of normal, Nebru normal Hebrew name formation and evidence transparent Hebrew etymologies and meanings. It is probably significant, then, that the Book of Mormon text manifests an awareness of the meaning of both Zarahemla and Jershon in the same narrative block, the resettlement of converted Lamanites in Jershon, and that the juxtaposition of each name with its putative um, meaning occurs repeatedly throughout interrelated segments of narrative, the resettlement of Zoramite refugees in Jershon among the converted Lamanites who accepted them and who subsequently migrated themselves from Jershon, near to or into the city of Zarahemla, and the children of the converted Lamanites coming to the aid of the Nephites against the Lamanites in plight of the former a generation later. 
compassionate Lamanite resettlement in a place of inheritance. Not long after their conversion, the Lamanites, under the leadership of Anti-Nephi-Lehi and Ammon, fled the land of Nephi and began a mass migration. The religiously motivated slaughter of the converts forced this dramatic population movement. Mormon states that Ammon and his brethren, out of compassion, directed the converted Lamanites' emigration towards Zarahemla. Now when Ammon and his brethren saw this work of destruction among those whom they so dearly beloved, and among those who had so dearly beloved them, for they were treated as though they were angels sent from God to save them from everlasting destruction. Therefore, when Ammon and his brethren saw this great work of destruction, they were moved with compassion, and they said unto the king, Let us gather together this people of the Lord, and let us go down to the land of Zarahemla, or the land of the seed of compassion, to our brethren the Nephites, and flee out of the hands of our enemies, that we be not destroyed. The wordplay on Zarahemla suggests that Zarahemla is the appropriate destination because compassion is in the name. The Nephites had taken refuge in the same place a few generations earlier. Only one generation earlier, the converts of Alma the Elder and refugees from the land of Nephi had been received with joy in Zarahemla after the Lord had been merciful unto them and had delivered them out of bondage from Amulon, a name which the narrator seems to deliberately tie to the idea of toil, trouble, or avail, uh, or man of toil, or man of trouble, coming from the roots amal and on, uh, meaning man or person of toil, trouble, or travail. And the Lamanites, over whom Amulon had authority. Similarly, when the people of Limhi arrived in the land of Zarahemla, after fleeing out of the land of Nephi from the Lamanites, Mormon reports that Mosiah received them with joy. Significantly, however, he also notes that Ammon's Lamanite convert refugees were not admitted or received into the city of Zarahemla itself, perhaps due to the inimical relationship that had existed for so long between the Nephites and Lamanites, and to the inevitable sociological issues of incorporating disparate cultures, something the Lamanites, um, excuse me, something the Nephites and Mulekites of Zarahemla had experienced recently. When Ammon and his brothers proposed a mission to the Lamanites, at least some Nephites in Zarahemla counter-proposed a preemptive war of genocide against the Lamanites, a decidedly uncompassionate act. It is interesting to recall Zenith's apparent wordplay on Zarahemla and Hamal. We returned those of us that were spared to the land of Zarahemla, which occurs in the context of another proposed preemptive war of genocide against the Lamanites. Zenith had been part of a party that had gone up from Zarahemla to the land of Nephi to spy out and destroy the Lamanite forces, but saw that which was good, or that which was essentially Nephite, a play on the meaning of Nephi, land of Nephi, and Nephite, and was desirous that they should not be destroyed. Internecine bloodshed ensued because of Zenith's compassion, and fortunately he was one of the spared. Mormon seems to allude to Zenith's first-person account in the wordplay on Zarahemla in Alma 27.4, and perhaps he has all of these events in mind when he describes the genocidal oaths that led to the final destruction of the Nephite nation, which oaths caused Mormon to recuse himself from leading the Nephites. Appropriately, Mormon had at that time the toponym desolation and the Nephites' utter destruction in view. At this stage, however, the Nephites of Zarahemla come up with a more humane solution, according to Mormon's account. And it came to pass that the chief judge sent a proclamation throughout all the land, desiring the voice of the people concerning the admitting their brethren, who were the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi, 
And it came to pass that the voice of the people came, saying, Behold, we will give up the land of Jershon, which is on the east by the sea, which joins the land Bountiful, which is on the south of the land Bountiful. And this land Jershon is the land which we will give unto our brethren for an inheritance. And behold, we will set our armies between the land Jershon and the land Nephi, that we may protect our brethren in the land Jershon. And this we do for our brethren, on account of their fear to take up arms against their brethren, lest they should commit sin. And this their great fear came, because of their sore repentance which they had, on account of their many murders and their awful wickedness. And now behold, this we will do unto our brethren, that they may inherit the land Jershon, and we will guard them from their enemies with our armies, on condition that they will give us a portion of their substance to assist us that we may maintain our armies. Now it came to pass that when Ammon had heard this, he returned to the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi, and also Alma with him, into the wilderness, where they had pitched their tents and made known unto them all these things. And Alma also related unto them his conversion with Ammon and Aaron and his brethren. And it came to pass that it had caused great joy among them. And they went down into the land of Jershon and took possession of the land of Jershon. And they were called by the Nephites the people of Ammon, Therefore they were distinguished by that name ever after. Alma 27, verses 20 through 26. The text repeatedly emphasizes that the converted Lamanites, not admitted into the land of Zarahemla, inherited the land of Jershon, or place of inheritance, for an inheritance. Perhaps the Nephites and the Nephite leadership at that time saw the name of the land Jershon as a kind of sign, or nomen est omen, of how the inevitable sociological problem of a great and sudden influx of Lamanite converts could be best solved. In any case, the narrator, here Alma or Mormon, recognized that the name Jershon was appropriate because of what happened there on this occasion, because of the compassion of Ammon and his brethren. The lives of the Lamanites were saved, and they received inheritances in Jershon, the place of inheritance, and took possession of Jershon, the place of possession. The narratological emphasis on this connection suggests that the narrator considered it important. This is subsequently confirmed in Alma chapter 35. The resettlement of poor Zoramite converts in Jershon and second forced immigration of the people of Ammon. When mass resettlement next becomes an issue, wordplay on Jershon again resurfaces in the narrative. Ammon's Lamanite converts did not long remain in Jershon. Even after a tremendous battle, even such an one as never had been known among all the people in the land from the time Lehi left Jerusalem, in or near Jershon, another contention begins over some Zoramites, or Nephite dissenters, who reconvert at the preaching of Alma, Amulek, Zeezrom, and others. These poor reconverts are cast out by the Zoramite leadership and subsequently seek refuge among Ammon's Lamanite converts in Jershon. Wordplay involving Jershon and inheritance is again evident. And it came to pass that after they had found out the minds of all the people, those who were in favor of the words which had been spoken by Alma and his brethren were cast out of the land, and they were many. And they came over also into the land of Jershon, or place of inheritance. And it came to pass that Alma and his brethren did minister unto them. Now the people of the Zoramites were angry with the people of Ammon who were in Jershon, and the chief ruler of the Zoramites, being a very wicked man, sent over unto the people of Ammon, desiring them that they should cast out of their land all those who came over from them into their land. And he, the leader of the Zoramites, breathed out many threatenings against them. 
And now the people of Ammon did not fear their words. Therefore they did not cast them out, but they did receive all the poor of the Zoramites that came over unto them. And they did nourish them, and did clothe them, and did give unto them lands for their inheritance. And they did administer unto them according to their wants. Alma 35, verses 8 and 9. The Lamanite converts, or the people of Ammon, gave the Zoramite reconverts lands for their inheritance in Jershon, as the Nephites had previously done for them. Another wordplay on Jershon. Notably, these Lamanites not only give them lands for their inheritance, but also nourish them and clothe them. The narrative emphasizes that these Lamanites did receive all the poor of the Zoramites and did not cast them out. The Nephites wanted to protect Ammon's Lamanite converts, but did not, at least at that time, admit them into the city of Zarahemla itself. The converted Lamanites were unable to protect those poor Zoramites militarily, but they were able to administer unto them in a purely compassionate way, just as Ammon and his brethren had ministered to them. This ministration was yet more evidence of the firmness of their faith in and the strength of their conversion to Christ, versus stereotypical Lamanite unbelief. But here Mormon further notes that the converted Lamanites did not stop at giving unto the converted Zoramites lands for their inheritance in Jershon, but they gave up their own inheritances in Jershon for the protection of the Zoramite reconverts. And the people of Ammon departed out of the land of Jershon and came over into the land of Melech and gave place in the land of Jershon for the armies of the Nephites, that they might contend with the armies of the Lamanites and the armies of the Zoramites, and thus commenced a war betwixt the Lamanites and the Nephites, in the eighteenth year of the reign of the judges. And an account shall be given of their wars hereafter, and Alma and Ammon and their brethren, and also the two sons of Alma returned to the land of Zarahemla, after having been instruments in the hands of God, of bringing many of the Zoramites to repentance. And as many as were brought to repentance were driven out of their land, but they, the converted Zoramites, have lands for their inheritance in the land of Jershon, and they have taken up arms to defend themselves and their wives and children and their lands. Here, Mormon reports that the people of Ammon migrated en masse out of the land of Jershon into the land of Melech, another Nephite land. Uh, Melech was a city or land on the west of the river Sidon, and three days' journey south of the land of Ammonihah, and evidently nearer the land of Zarahemla. This passage re-emphasizes the role of the land of Jershon as place of inheritance, the place where the converted Zoramites received lands for their inheritance because of the complete unselfishness of the Lamanite converts. For their part, these Zoramites, unlike Ammon's converted Lamanites, were able to join the Nephite military defending themselves, their families, and their lands. And yet these Lamanites, specifically their own sons, would be able to aid the Nephites in their own unique way a generation later. Reciprocal Pity and Compassion it may be worth noting here that the emigration movements of Ammon's Lamanite converts from the land of Nephi to the land of Jershon to the land of Melech are not entirely dissimilar to the migratory movements of the early Latter-day Saints from New York to Ohio to Missouri to Illinois to Utah, i.e. being forced to repatriate over great distances over every few years. The narrative does not tell us about the movement of the people of Ammon after they evacuate the land of Jershon. However, it would seem that many, perhaps most of them, were by the second generation actually living further south of the land of, if not the city of, Zarahemla, rather than in the land of Jershon further north. This would explain why the narrator, when retelling the story of the initial resettlement of the people of Ammon, makes no mention of the land of Jershon. Instead, the narrator, either Alma or Mormon, 
emphasizes the connection between the converted Lamanites and the broader land of Zarahemla, rather than including Jershon. And now, behold, I have somewhat to say concerning the people of Ammon, who in the beginning were Lamanites. But by Ammon and his brethren, or rather by the power and word of God, they had been converted unto the Lord, and they had been brought down into the land of Zarahemla, and had ever since been protected by the Nephites. And because of their oath they had been kept from taking up arms against their brethren, for they had taken an oath that they never would shed blood more, and according to their oath they would have perished. Yea, they would have suffered themselves to have fallen into the hands of their brethren had it not been for the pity and the exceeding love which Ammon and his brethren had had for them. And for this cause they were brought down into the land of Zarahemla, and they ever had been protected by the Nephites. But it came to pass that when they, the converted Lamanites, saw the danger and the many afflictions and tribulations which the Nephites bore for them, they were moved with compassion and were desirous to take up arms in the defense of their country. In retelling the story of the immigration of the converted Lamanites out of the land of Nephi, the narrator makes no mention of the fact the Nephites did not initially receive the converts into the city of Zarahemla, but instead gave them Jershon for an inheritance. Rather, he emphasizes that the Lamanites had dwelt in the land of Zarahemla in a very broad sense, as well as the protection that the Nephites had given those Lamanite converts, who would not protect themselves because of the covenant they had made with God. By reiterating the word play on Zarahemla, in Alma 27, 4-5, he also reemphasizes the pity or compassion, Hemla, that Ammon and his brethren had for their Lamanite converts. The narrative states here that the Lamanites were brought down into the land of Zarahemla and makes no mention of the resettlement in Jershon. In the earlier account, the Lamanites came into the wilderness that divided the land of Nephi from the land of Zarahemla and came over near the borders of the land. Ammon at that time stated, Ye shall remain here until we return, and we will try the hearts of our brethren whether they will that ye should come into their land. Ammon had a good reason to try the hearts of his brethren in the land of Zarahemla, who, when Ammon and his brothers proposed their mission to the Lamanites, not only laughed them to scorn, but proposed a preemptive war of genocide against the Lamanites, a lack of compassion that contrasts starkly with Ammon and his brother's compassion, as noted earlier. Also, as noted previously, the converted Lamanites were subsequently admitted into the land of Jershon, but not directly into the city of Zarahemla itself or its environs. Over the course of a generation, however, the converted Lamanites migrated from Jershon to the land of Melech, nearer the city of Zarahemla. Zarahemla explicitly would be placed um, in the land of, of the Lamanites. Uh, as in Alma 47.29, if not in the city of Zarahemla itself, and thus they were still the beneficiaries of the compassion or pity that Ammon and his brethren had shown them. After retelling the story, the Nephites being in serious military danger during that subsequent generation, the narrator, Mormon abridging Helaman's record, gives the wordplay on Zarahemla a new twist. The Lamanite converts recognize this danger and are even willing to break their covenant of bearing their weapons to come to the Nephites' aid. The text states that they were moved with compassion, a verbatim reprise of Alma 27.4. The collocation they were moved with compassion is found only in these two passages in the scriptures. 
The pity or compassion of Ammon and his brethren for their Lamanite converts, then, is the basis for their converts' compassion for the Nephites in their moment of need a generation later. The reiteration of the wordplay involving pity, or moved with compassion, Hemla, and Zarahemla, not only bespeaks the magnanimity, excuse me, magnanimity of what Ammon and his brethren had done a generation earlier, as well as the Christ-like compassion of the converted Lamanites, but also attests the divine providence that continued to attend the Nephites, this often in spite of themselves. The narrative suggests that the name Zarahemla was a fitting symbol of divine compassion, not because of the Nephites as a whole, but because of Ammon, his brethren, and his Lamanite converts. Ammon and his brethren came up from Zarahemla not with the intent to destroy their brethren, but to save some few of their souls. And because of their compassion and pity, they saved many Lamanites' lives, both temporally and eternally. Then, a generation later, their converts returned the favor for the Nephites, ultimately allowing their own children to go to war on behalf of the Nephites, thus saving or sparing the Nephites as a nation. The name Zarahemla becomes increasingly ironic in later Nephite history when the Nephites become more wicked than the Lamanites, in the end utterly losing their compassion, and thereafter the Lord will no longer spare them. The Lord will be merciful and increase their seed. Mormon's source for much of the material in Alma 53 is Helaman's letter to Moroni, as found in Alma uh, chapters 56 through 58, regarding the 2,060 Lamanite stripling sons who go to war on behalf of the Nephites. From this point forward, for a generation or more, the Lamanites grow greater in their faithfulness while the Lamanites diminish. By the time of Nephi, the son of Helaman, the Lamanites are more righteous than the Nephites, as he points out to the Nephites of Zarahemla. Now, therefore, I would that ye should behold, my brethren, that it shall be better for the Lamanites than for you, except ye shall repent. For, behold, they are more righteous than you, for they have not sinned against that great knowledge which ye have received. Therefore, the Lord will be merciful unto them. Yea, he will lengthen out their days and increase their seed. Even when thou shalt be utterly destroyed, except thou shalt repent. In the Zarahemla context of Nephi's speech, his prophecy that the Lord will be merciful, i.e. have compassion on the Lamanites and increase their seed, constitutes a plausible play on the name Zarahemla. This speech also may include further example of wordplay on Zarahemla, as noted above. Will ye say that the sons of Zedekiah were not slain, all except it were Mulek? Yea, and do, not, do ye not behold that the seed, or Zarah, of Zedekiah are with us? and they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem? By the time of Nephi the son of Helaman, the Nephites knew what it was like to lose inheritance or possession of the land of Zarahemla to the Lamanites, even half of their possession. Yet when these unconverted Lamanites were converted, they not only yielded up to the Nephites the lands of their possession, they did come down into the land of Zarahemla and did declare unto the people of Nephi the number of their conversion, and did exhort them to faith and repentance. The Nephites will experience the destruction and rebuilding of Zarahemla before history again repeats itself. Mormon later informs us that during his youth, the war of extinction that culminated in the destruction of the Nephites as a nation be began in the borders of Zarahemla by the waters of Sidon. In Mormon 2, Mormon tells us about the Nephites finally being driven out of the city and land of Zarahemla and all their lands south of the land of desolation, before being utterly destroyed as prophesied and promised. 
what had been a long-standing symbol of the Lord's compassion for the seed of Mulek, and later the seed of Nephi became a symbol of the Lord's utter destruction of the Nephites. And yet the promise still remains that the Lord will be merciful unto the Lamanites and will increase their seed. Yasip Zaram. Or, as Mormon states it elsewhere, Surely he hath been merciful unto the seed of Joseph, yea, and surely shall he again bring a remnant of the seed of Joseph to the knowledge of the Lord their God. And as surely as the Lord liveth, will he gather in from the four corners of the earth all the remnant of the seed of Jacob who are scattered abroad upon all the face of the earth. Conclusion Michael O'Connor has observed that the ancient display awareness of the meanings and shapes of names chiefly in liter literature. That, uh, excuse me, this is true of Hebrew biblical narrative as it is of Book of Mormon narrative. We have seen in this study that Mormon and his sources for the Book of Alma, including Alma the Younger and his son Helaman, appear to be very aware of the Hebrew meaning on the names Jershon and Zarahemla, and several of the narratives in Alma that deal with these names are written in part to show these names are appropriate and ironic in view of what transpired in their vicinities. Jershon serves as a place of inheritance, and Zarahemla as a source of life and soul-saving compassion in multiple instances, even in spite of the lack of compassion of many of the Nephites. The compassion that Ammon and his brethren had shown the Lamanites, and the reciprocal compassion shown by the Lamanites a generation later, would have served both the Nephites and the Lamanites well during Mormon's own time, when each sought to utterly destroy the other near, appropriately enough, the city of desolation. The Nephites might otherwise have retained the lands of compassion amongst traditional foes, would serve Mormon's latter-day audience well, whether Jew or Gentile, especially those plagued by genocide and war. Compassion, like the Savior's, is the word. Yet again we see that the Book of Mormon not only constitutes a sacred history for a latter-day audience, but a highly literary work and a skillfully woven narrative filled with literary devices and intertextual illusion. This bespeaks the work of skilled ancient authors and Mormon's deft editorial work rather than a 19th century author with limited literary attainments. The author would like to thank Jeffrey M. Bradshaw, Parker Jackson, Heather Sulace, and Tim Guyman. Matthew L. Bowen was raised in Orem, Utah, and graduated from Brigham Young University. He holds a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and is currently an assistant professor in religious education at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He and his wife, the former Suzanne Blattberg, are the parents of three children, Zachariah, Nathan, and Adele. This has been a recording of They Were Moved with Compassion, Toponymic Wordplay on Zarahemla and Jershon by Matthew L. Bowen, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 18, 2016, pages 185 through 205, read by Parker Jackson. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.